I was in 10th grade, and one day I was uh, lifting weights at Garden Spot in the weight room, and I was lifting too much weight uh, on the shoulder press, and I was contorting using improper form to try to get the weight up, and all of a sudden, excruciating pain flew into my neck. Uh, at that point, I permanently injured my neck. Uh, the pain eventually subsided. It, it took probably a, a few days, but the damage had already been done, and it, it actually hasn't been the same since. Um, and every few years, every, every once in a while, it'll pop up and knock me, knock me down for several days, and it comes at odd times. I missed preaching at North Park one time because of it. Um, now, I knew how to do it right. But I chose not to do it right, and it has caused me a lot of pain. And we do this spiritually. As Christians, we know how to obey, glorify, and praise God. We know that disobedience hurts us, and yet we still choose to do it wrong. We don't do it right, and we suffer the consequences. God forgives us, absolutely, but He doesn't necessarily remove the pain of our sin. Christina and I taught uh, Jeremiah and Maria how to ride bike uh, about when they were five years old. And at first, when the training wheels came off, there were tears and frustration and, uh, and some crashes, and, and they didn't think that they'd ever get it. Um, they, they would walk away from the bike sometimes and just, just in a bad frame of mind. And they didn't want to continue, but with some encouragement, they actually continued. And when it finally clicked, these kids were zooming around on their bikes with great joy and fun because they had learned how to do it. They had made progress. Now, it wasn't like they were X-gaming it over our, our van or something like that, but they got it. And, and since then, they've been getting better at it. All right, they're in process. Well, this is us spiritually as well. There are some things in God's word that we just don't know. We're ignorant of those things. We're immature. And so we need to learn those things, and then we need to learn how to obey those things with the Spirit's help. See, we're not naturals at this, but when it clicks, when the Holy Spirit works, and we're filled with joy, we get better and better at it. Glorifying and praising God is like the training of Olympic athletes. They are always striving to be a little bit better, a little faster, a little stronger. They always want to cut the time and to have that edge. They have an insatiable hunger to get better so they can win the gold. And when they do, there is great joy. Matchless joy is found in glorifying and praising God. Don't ever forget that. Matchless joy is found in glorifying and praising God. Paul ended his prayer section of verses 3 through 11 with this little doxological phrase. To the glory and praise of God. That's what it's all about. To the glory and praise of God. Isaiah 43, 7 says that God created you for his glory. You were made to glorify and praise God. So naturally, living out your greatest purpose is the pathway to your greatest joy. Here's a biblical connection between God's glory and your greatest joy. Glance quickly at verses 9 through 11. 
Notice the word love in verse 9, the word fruit in verse 11, and the phrase to the glory and praise of God in verse 11. That sounds like Jesus in John 15, verses 8 through 11. And listen how Jesus connected glorifying God with joy. He said, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you see the connection between glorifying God and joy? Jesus taught his disciples that the way to have full joy is to abide in his love, to bear much fruit and glorify God in the process. This is not far into Philippians because in chapter 1, verse 25, Paul mentioned progress and joy in the faith. In chapter 3, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul told them to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul was big on joy in Christ. So in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, when Paul prayed for God to do these things in the saints, it led to the glory and praise of God, verse 11, and also superlative joy for the Philippians in God. The pathway to your greatest joy and pleasure is glorifying and praising God. That's your purpose. And Paul's short prayer in verses 9 through 11 will teach us how we are to glorify and praise God and therein grab more joy. So let's chew on these verses together and, uh, to better understand how to glorify God and to better understand how to grab more joy for ourselves in the process. Number one, pray Philippians 1, 9 through 11 for yourself and for our church. Paul wrote in verse 9, and it is my prayer. So guided by the Holy Spirit of God, Paul prayed this prayer with affection and great yearning. He wanted God to do this. The word and in verse 9 connects back to verse 8 where Paul expressed this deep affection and love for the saints at Philippi. He prayed this because he loved the Philippians, loved the saints at Philippi, and he wanted God's best for them. Paul prayed this little prayer none other than God himself, because Paul knew that God is sovereign and omnipotent and good, and that God could actually answer his prayers. I want you to remember this. God's hands are never tied. God's hands are never tied. He is completely free. He is completely capable to answer our prayers. So it would Bring glory to God and, and praise to God if you prayed this little prayer. It's one way that you can love the saints at Jerusalem, to pray this prayer for them. Will you commit to praying this little prayer? Maybe praying it often for the saints at Jerusalem. So let's unpack what Paul prayed. Here's another way that we can glorify and praise God so that our joy increases. Number two, Love the saints more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Again, Paul prayed this to God. Paul believed that if 
There was going to be an increase of love, the kind of increase that he's talking about here in these verses, that God would need to cause the increase. The kind of increase of love that Paul prayed cannot be produced by mere human effort. God must cause the increase as his people work to love more. Again, that's verse 6. In fact, that's, uh, that's chapter 2, verse 13, and chapter 4, verse 13. That's why Paul's praying to God, because he wants God to do a work in the Philippians. And Paul said, that your love may abound more and more. And I ask the question when I read that, love for what? What, what were they to love more and more? That's not clear in the immediate verse. This is where you really have to dig into the context. Paul's letter included much about how the Philippians should treat one another. He told them in chapter 2, verse 2, to be of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So I think that Paul was praying uh, for their love for each other to abound more and more. They, they did already love each other, but Paul wanted to see that love for the saints increase more and more and more. The word abound means in large quantity. Bill Gates' money abounds. He has a lot of it. And you'll notice, if you know anything about Bill Gates, his money is not stockpiled and static. He, he, Bill Gates doesn't keep all of his billions under his mattress. He puts it to work. He keeps investing it. The Philippians loved each other, absolutely, but that wasn't enough. It needed to be invested, continually invested, and it needed to grow, and it needed to grow more and more. Through the years, I've, I've done a little bit of studying on investing. I'm no expert in any stretch of the imagination, but I know a little bit. And there's this beautiful truth called compound interest. Compound interest. If at age 25, you invest $5,000 a year for 40 years at an annual return of 7%, when you turn 65, 40 years after uh, you've invested and, and you've invested over the course of that time $200,000, your $200,000 investment will be worth $1.14 million. That's the power of compound interest, of investing. Paul prayed for love to be compounded like that. You see, God gets glory and God gets praise when you grow happier as your love for the saints multiplies, compounds. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 is the same idea. Paul told the Thessalonian church, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. Your love for the saints should not be static. You should not stockpile it. It shouldn't remain the same. It should be growing or else something is wrong in your heart. But be not dismayed. The increase of your love is a process. And you know what? Sometimes it's a slow process. But the increase is there. Uh, Dr. G. Walter Hansen commented on verse 9. The addition of more and more emphasizes the ongoing dynamic process 
of growth and the ever-growing potential for better and purer expressions of love, end of quote. There is an ever-growing potential for us to love each other a little better, a little purer, a little more. And like Paul, we should pray for God to produce this increase in us. The impact of this answered prayer in us would be amazing. Why is it that some professing Christians, their love for the saints doesn't seem to be increasing, it actually seems to be decreasing? It's so sad that so many professing Christians have just pulled back from the local church. The very context in which they can most fully express their love for Jesus and fully express their love for one another. They're they're actually loving less compared to where they were years before. They are stabbing their own joy repetitively in the heart. The happiest people on planet earth, I promise you, are those who find great joy in the saints, in loving the saints more and more. And not loving them the way that our culture says to love people. But loving the saints in the way that God says to love the people. So to love well, we must know God and his word. And we must rightly discern how to love. Look again at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And I prefer the translation in knowledge and all discernment, which I think more accurately represents the Greek in this case. So love can only abound more and more inside of knowledge, true knowledge and all discernment. If you remove love from knowledge, if you remove love from discernment, you no longer have love. When I was a kid... I love to play this little baseball game, and it's cool because it still works. And now, hold on. Oh, I was out. Now, uh, my kids love to play this game. And it's a great little game. This was before all the fancy stuff, fancy schmancy that you have today. But batteries on their own are very little fun. And electronic games are very little fun apart from the batteries. You have to put the batteries inside the game in order for the game to come alive, in order for the game to actually be worth playing. Love must be inside of knowledge and all discernment in order for love to flourish and grow. What does Paul mean by knowledge? Knowledge of what? Well, again, we need to dig into the context. Paul most often used this word for knowledge in reference to things like knowledge of God, knowledge of God's will, knowledge of the truth, spiritual knowledge. Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3 are particularly helpful where Paul talked about saints being knit together in love. There you have the love component. And he also mentioned the knowledge of God's mystery, which, is, which Paul said is Christ. Then he added that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, I love this, in Christ. 
Then consider Philippians 3, verses 8 and 10, where Paul mentioned the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. So it seems that Philippians 1, verse 9 is referring to love abounding more and more inside of knowledge of Christ. And we know Christ by the Spirit through the Word. So we could also say knowledge of the Word. So love is not simply emotional, but it is also rational. We know Christ in the mind as well. So if our love for each other is going to abound more and more, we must know Christ. We must know his word. We must know Christ emotionally and treasure him and value him. And we must know Christ rationally. We must think rightly about him. Listen carefully. The more deeply you know Jesus Christ, the more deeply you will love the saints because intimacy with Christ proliferates love. It grows it. It increases it more and more. Over the past five years or so, my love for Christ and my knowledge of Christ has grown. It's grown. Jesus is sweeter to me now. He's more vivid to me now than what he was five years ago. And I, I think the John series had something to do that for me. Um, and you know what? As my love and knowledge of Christ increases, I'm finding that that is stirring up a greater affection and a greater desire to love God's people, the saints, to love you. And you know what? I am such an imperfect pastor. My love is not... It, it's pathetic at times. Uh, but I can tell that it's growing stronger. Even if it's a little bit, it's growing stronger. It's getting more mature. I'm looking for more ways to discern exactly how to use Jonathan gifts for the edification and love of other people. Just a little bit at a time. Growing a little bit. The multiplication may be small, but the multiplication is there. For the Christian, love for the saints flows out of a rational and emotional knowledge of Christ. And therefore, love is expressed in a way that pleases Christ, that glorifies Christ. Because it's not love if it doesn't glorify the king. All right, this is where the phrase all discernment comes in. Love must function inside of discernment all the time. There's never a time that love steps outside of discernment. The Greek word for discernment uh, here in this verse, it's the only time that it, that it shows up in the New Testament. And it means to have the capacity to understand and weigh matters accurately, to weigh matters rightly. As we know Christ, we will have the capacity to understand how to love each other. Discernment helps us know how to love like Jesus wants us to love. Discernment helps us apply the knowledge that we have of Christ. You see, we need to be taught how to love one another. 
We need to be taught how to love one another because love is not instinctual. No matter what the culture tells you, love is not instinctual for us. Guessing is bad, so don't guess how to love one another. The best way to know how to love is to know Christ and to know his word. The Holy Spirit is the most excellent teacher. He will teach you how to love more and more and more. The closer and closer we get to Christ, the more our love will be able to abound. And so can you see how if that's the case, it glorifies and praises God when our increase of love and and we find joy in that increase in love and how we love each other. Verse 10 is important. It begins, so that you may. Paul is praying verse 9 so that verses 10 and 11 happen. Um, When 9 happens, 10 and 11 happen. Now, what did Paul want to happen? To glorify and to praise God and to grab more joy for ourselves in the process? Number 3, we must approve what is excellent. Paul asked God to multiply the love between the saints in knowledge and all discernment so that they would all approve what God considers excellent. Uh, The word for approve means to examine something closely and to determine that it it has worth, that it is valuable. The word for excellent means something that has superior worth, uh, a most excellent. Last Saturday, uh, my family and I headed out to uh, the Miller's cabin, and we headed to Leonard Harrison State Park in Tioga County, to overlook the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon with our friends. And we did that, and the view is spectacular. It's a wonderful uh, view. Back in 2009, Christina and I went to the Grand Canyon. And after examining both canyons, I have to say that the Grand Canyon is the most grand. It's just better. And I like the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon, but the Grand Canyon is better. You see, I've approved the Grand Canyon as excellent because it surpasses the grandeur of the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon. Are you following me? With the increase of love for the saints comes the ability to consider the things of God superior over the things of the world. This is how Paul was able to say in verse 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He is better. So Paul prayed, verse 9, because he wanted the Philippians to consider Christ better than everything else and therefore choose the best things, choose the Christ things in their church. How could we possibly approve what is excellent if we don't know rationally and experientially that Jesus is better than everything else? Oftentimes, saints and churches approve what is not excellent. The largest so-called church in America, Lakewood Church in Houston, which averages over 43,000 people every week, has a pastor who preaches the supremacy of health, wealth, and prosperity, and not Christ. And thousands of people approve it as excellent. The United Church of Christ is composed of 5,000 local churches, some in Lancaster County, 
and it has close to one million members, the UCC was the first mainline denomination to ordain an openly gay man, I think in the 1970s. And it was the first to affirm gay marriage. The UCC's website has an LGBT ministries page where the LGBT lifestyle is affirmed and encouraged. Not all UCC churches agree with this, which is how their church structure is, so you have, to, you have to be fair there. But hundreds of thousands of members approve that as excellent. These are examples. There are more examples. This is just two. And they are not illustrations of knowledge and discernment and approving what is excellent. They are illustrations of the rejection of Jesus Christ and his word. And they are examples of hatred, not love. Hordes of people are being deceived because the love they think they have isn't rooted in the knowledge of Christ and all discernment. And it does not lead to approving what is excellent. Now, we may know the gospel at Jerusalem Church, and we may have a biblical view of sexuality at Jerusalem Church, but what might we all approve that God does not? Friends, if our love for each other is not consistently increasing, the chances are we are drifting toward approving what is not excellent. Oh, let love abound more and more and more at Jerusalem Church. When we the saints approve what is excellent, we can be pure and blameless when Christ returns. This is what Paul prayed for, and if we are to glorify and to praise God more so that our joy increases, we must, number four, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is not what our culture believes because purity is laughed at and blamelessness, well, it's just boring in our culture, but purity and blamelessness is the the pathway to our greatest joy. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The word pure is something genuine, something spotless, something without mixture. Think of a diamond ring being put under that little thing. I did that with Christina's diamond. I got to look at it. I was like, oh, that's nice. I want that one. And so we got that, and it proved to be valuable. $10,000 I paid for that. I'm just kidding. It wasn't that expensive. You're all like, what cut the pastor's salary in half? Just sell the diamond. All right. It wasn't that expensive. Figuratively, pure means sincere, without any hidden motives. The word blameless means being clear of conscience and without offense. Paul prayed for the saints' love to abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that they would approve what is excellent, and in approving what is excellent, they would be pure and blameless when Jesus returned. A pure and blameless church. Now, please take heart to this, or take this to heart, rather. How you love each other is connected with your sanctification and readiness for the return of Christ. The day of Christ means the return of Christ. He's coming back. All right, in their song, Pure Bride, the band Leland talks about Jesus Christ the bridegroom coming back for the church, for his bride. And one line of the song says this, 
children, get your hearts right. God's coming for a pure bride. Verse 6 says that God, the good work that God began in us, that he will complete it when Jesus Christ returns. So on this side, our love, our joy, our purity, our blamelessness will not be perfect. It will not be what it wants or what it will be in the future, but Christ is indeed coming for a pure and blameless bride, and he is working in us unto that end, and we are always to strive like the Olympic athlete for greater holiness. Just because there's no perfection on this side doesn't mean we shouldn't strive as God wants us to strive. So please pay attention to this. Because it makes all the difference in your life and eternity. You will not be ready for Jesus unless your love for the saints is abounding more and more. And you are being made more and more pure and blameless. We call this sanctification. According to Romans 8.29, God predestined those whom he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you understand what that means? God predestined people to be more and more like Jesus. Uh, Leon Morris said this, It is God's plan that his people become like his son. Not that they should muddle along in a modest respectability. He predestined us not only to be released from an unpleasant predicament, but in order that we might become like his son. God didn't save you simply to keep you out of hell. He saved you to make you more and more pure and blameless like Jesus, his son. In this life, we are being made that way. We don't just sit and rest in a static way, our holiness remaining the same throughout life. We must grow in this. We must be more and more like Jesus. Are you growing? Is there that process where you look 10 years ago and you say, I'm a different person than when I was then? Is that process happening in you? So that when Jesus comes, you are ready for him. And you're ready and prepared for heaven. Because he's been preparing you along the way. In verse 11, Paul explained pure and blameless more. So in order for us to glorify and praise God more and to grab more joy for ourselves, we must, number five, be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Approving what is excellent ends in being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, let's be careful about this. There are two ways to understand righteousness. The first applies to justification. The second applies to sanctification. The first is who you are in Christ. The second is who you are becoming in Christ. When you trust in Christ alone for salvation, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to you, is counted to you, is imputed to you. You are justified by grace through faith. 
Therefore, right now, at this point in time, you are 100% righteous in the eyes of God because you have Christ's righteousness counted as yours. It's not about your right. You have no righteousness in this sense. Christ has all righteousness, and it's 100% yours, all of it, that you receive by faith. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ that we have because of the merits of Christ. But then there's righteousness in the sense of how we live. God calls us to do righteous things with the Spirit's help. Do you understand the difference of the imputed righteousness of Christ and the righteousness that we need to live out as Christians? It's a very important distinction. In verse 11, Paul was talking about making right choices, doing right things, obeying God by the power of Christ in you. He wasn't talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. The word filled is passive in meaning. It means to be filled up. To be filled up. It means God fills us with the fruit of righteousness. Fruit is the harvest, the grain, the yield, or metaphorically the good outcome. Christ is the vine. We are the branches Christ produces fruit in and through us because we are connected to him. That's how the fruit of righteousness is grown. That's how it's produced. It comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. That's right, Jesus. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23 tell us that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all the fruit of the Spirit, which means the Spirit has to produce that in us. Dr. Hansen summarized Paul very well. He said, these are people whose lives are filled with the fruit of attitudes and actions that reflect the attitudes and actions of Christ. That kind of fruit is defined as righteousness. That's what Paul means. Thinking, attitude, feeling, doing like Jesus. The multiplication of love among the saints is for the purpose of thinking and acting like Jesus. That's why love is connected to knowledge of Jesus. Those who truly know Christ love like Christ and therefore are filled with the righteousness that comes through Christ. Paul wasn't talking about imputed righteousness in verse 11. However, we must recognize that our righteous works for God flow out of our righteous standing before God. We are right with God, 100% righteous in His sight because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Therefore, we live out of that identity in Christ by doing righteous things for the glory of Christ. Are you getting it? This is theological somewhat. Our righteous works flow out of our receiving the righteousness of Christ by faith. The two righteousnesses are distinct, but they cannot be separated. The last way we glorify and praise God more and grab more joy in the process is number six. Live a joyfully righteous life for the glory and praise of God. It does not glorify and praise God when we grumble while doing what he says. Irritable obedience is not actually obedience. Did you know that? 
You may do something that God says, but if you don't do it joyfully, he commands you to do it joyfully. Therefore, you're not obeying in the joy part. And therefore, you should confess that sin of not being joyful in doing what God has asked you to do. Irritable obedience is not full obedience. Now, you have to be careful here. So I added this part, hopefully, to help the person who's ahead of me. Of course, every action of ours has at least a dash of imperfection. And because Christ is our perfection, God receives and is pleased by our imperfect joy and actions. Okay? I I need to say that because that's important. But we cannot minimize the fact that joyful righteousness is what God commands. That doesn't nullify that command. Glad obedience glorifies and praises God. And verse 11 shows that Paul's prayer is all about God being magnified and God being celebrated. To glorify God means to live in a way that displays the superior worth of God, the splendor of God, the radiance and beauty of God. To glorify God means to honor God. What honors God most and shows him to be supremely valuable is living a righteous life with gladness. Because the gladness shows that God and righteousness is worth it. That it is superior. Answer this question. When you are extravagantly loved by another Christian, by someone at this church, a saint, are you not led to praise God? Because you're loved. They're loving me. Praise God. Now, that should be the posture of your heart because... It's actually God's love flowing through that person to you. God is loving you through that saint because where does it all come from? It's through Christ. And so when that person comes to you and they do the extravagant work of of love for you and you felt so cherished, you know that God is smiling upon you, is loving you through the saint. That is excellent. That is really good. When we are loved by the saints, we are loved by Christ. And that is the most exciting thing of all. A loving church is a praise-filled church because they know the origin of love. They know where that ethos comes from. And it excites them. You see, Jerusalem Church is, is a very welcoming church. And I think at the root of that is a love for Christ, a love for each other. And it's God's love working in our church. This is a special place. You can feel loved here, even if you're messed up like me. And you're like, man, these people still let me come around here. Well, they let me preach. So this is love right here. All right, please understand that the fruit of joyful righteousness comes through believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you desire to live like this, to love like this, to have it abound more and more, you must trust Christ alone. There's no other way to get this kind of love. There's no other way to increase like this. Because when you trust Christ alone, God gets all the glory. God gets all the praise because God generates the growth. When Jesus returns, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, dear saints, we'll be ready. We're going to be pure. We're going to be blameless. We're going to be beautiful in God's eyes. We will be filled with the fruit of righteousness because God began a great work in us and God will finish that great work in us. 
He'll complete it so our love for each other will abound more and more as we trust Christ. This will happen. Verses 9 through 11 is a powerful little prayer. It's simple, but it's profound. And each part of this prayer explains how to glorify and praise God and how to grab more joy in the process. And if we live out this this short little prayer, we will be truly happy people. And so all I'm trying to do is just be used of the Holy Spirit to get that into you so that you believe it. And not to pursue the happiness of the world which will fail you and leave you empty. Oh, but to to look to each other, draw close, love, love being built up. And we're going to be so ready. We're going to be so ready when Jesus comes. He's going to be so pleased with us. So I challenge you to pray this prayer for yourself and to pray this prayer for our church. Pray it often. Pray it with joy. Pray it because you know that only God can do something like this. And pray it because you want God to get more glory and more praise. Pray it. Pray it. And let's see what God does when we pray this. So let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. You are gracious. You are kind. God, we pray to you that you would increase our love, multiply it, compound it. May it abound more and more and more in knowledge of you and your son, in knowledge of your scripture, and in all discernment that we could apply what you tell us in your word wisely and rightly apply it in how we love each other so that it ends in in us approving what is actually excellent what you think is excellent and so in that approving what is excellent God in our church in Jerusalem God I pray that we would be so pure and so blameless awaiting the return of Christ and God that you would prepare us for Christ and prepare us for heaven now until he comes so that we'd be ready And God, that we would be so filled with the fruit of righteousness that it glorifies and praises you. That everybody looks at our righteousness and our abounding love and says, man, only God can do that. I want in. So God, I'm praying Philippians 1, 9 through 11 for myself and for our church. And I pray that we really take this to heart. I pray that this sermon series in Philippians rocks us and that we will have more and more joy in you and your word. I believe this book was designed to do that. And so, God, may we read it and study it rightly, all for your glory and your fame. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.